Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Well, hello and welcome to our now fourth podcast uh, with Maggie. Hello. Severine. Hello. And myself, Unpacking the Case of Joanne Properties and Money Thing Capital. A recent case decided at the end of November 2020 and already discussed by us just two months later. Pretty brilliant, I'd say. I fear, though, that on this case, we might be in agreement on the particular facts, so I may need to use some skill then to make things a little less clear-cut, so we might be going off-piste a little bit in this episode. Let me begin with a brief outline of the facts before we jump right into the discussion. The case here involved negotiations following a compromise. Solicitors for both sides exchanged various emails headed subject to contract. The solicitors then spoke on the 11th of July 2019 and the intendant's note uh, recorded that it had been considered a firm offer. The email following up that conversation, however, was headed without prejudice and subject to contract. The follow-up email again contained what the judges held to be a counter-offer, increasing the sum from £72,000 to £75,000. The reply then to that email, still headed by the way subject to contract, stated agreed and included a note to say that they would liaise with counsel to put a proposal to them to achieve the desired end. I'm misusing my powers here a little bit. Um, This, by the way, contrary to the actual judge's opinion, is to me one of the deciding factors, less so the subject to contract debate. Anyway, let's get back to the facts. Joanne Properties later changed solicitors who then claimed that there'd be no binding contract. The judge held that it was a matter to be determined objectively whether the parties had indeed entered into a legally binding contract. And Lord Lewis (coughs) spent some significant time discussing the importance of the phrase subject to contract as a way of safeguarding against a contract coming into existence, especially for solicitors in connection with land, as one of his big arguments. He went on to say that the first instance judge, who had held that there was a contract, had seriously undervalued the force of the subject-to-contract label, holding that the parties never intended to actually enter into a contract. Now, there was some hinting in the judgment that maybe the owner of Joanne Properties had considered there to be a formal contract and the matter to have been settled Let me therefore begin with the following question. Do we think, subjectively, the parties were actually agreed here? Perhaps that's where we can look at the position that was taken by the High Court and the position of um, taken by the Court of Appeal uh, when Lord Lewisham um, 
who looked at the position of the high court saying, you know, that they seriously undervalued the subject to contract and that effectively, I think that's probably the biggest criticism of uh, Lord Lewison of um, the High Court's decision, saying that indeed they looked too much at uh, whether the intention uh, was that there was a contract as opposed to subject to contract. So in a way, um, I think that is probably the um, the all you know and underlying. Uh, question as to on which ground, uh, because it is indeed clear uh, for the High Court, you know, they did say uh, one of the points that was picked up by uh, Lord uh, Justice Lewison, that the uh, person behind Joanne Property indeed thought that the dispute had been uh, compromised. So, yes, I think that is probably the uh, at the, what the core of what we consider the basis of the decision should it have been only looking at the fact that um, there was uh, a contract uh, and what is the Lord Lewison appears or says uh, that the subject contract is just overriding everything and it has to be taken into consideration from the start. So yes, I would say that's the core of what it is uh, at at the core of the problem here, of the legal question, I would have thought. <clears throat> I'm going to sound like a politician, I think, because <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> I, I'm going to answer the question that I want to be asked. Uh, um, and I would say I, I don't care what the parties actually subjectively thought because remember it's the objectivity which is so fundamentally important for English contract law so uh, my answer would be who cares I, I don't care what they subjectively thought it's how it appeared and how objectively in, independent from what's going on in their actual heads um, they thought was happening and I suppose you you know to try and answer your question, perhaps one should really be asking what was in objectively uh, or subjectively, whichever you, way you want to go, um, was in the heads of the solicitors because they were acting and were agents for the parties. So I think it would be pretty important to stop and think about what the solicitors thought they were doing. And that's why, as Severine is saying, that label subject to contract uh, becomes so so very important, I think, given the context of legal practice. It, 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 everyone in legal practice uses that label in a particular way and knows what they're doing with that label. Which therefore, uh, and, and Lord Justice Lewison did uh, at the end say that, you know, solicitors of that standing surely uh, must have known that what they were doing. So, but, you know, that brings the question. So I, I agree with you, Maggie, that, you know, subjectively, who cares? Because it is indeed uh, a, an objective. But th that question uh, is the thing that was arguably reached by the uh, High Court that objectively, um, the you know, there was a contract so but yes i agree with you that it, you know it, it, it brings us to what is the question here what the solicitors should have done or you know are we looking at uh, what the uh, solicitors as agent of the parties uh, or are we looking at objectively defining whether there is a contract so the subject to contract is 
of course, incredibly important here. And I suppose one one has got to always remember that there is a distinction, I think, between uh, the existence of a contract and agreement on the terms. Uh, and I think that's a point that Lord Justice Lewison is trying to make, that at first instance, there seemed to be a blurring or conflating of those two concepts. So you can, for example, have an agreement on all of the terms. Everything has been nailed down. And yet there is no contract yet. And that is the classic way in which a solicitor would use the label uh, subject to contract because there's some other condition that is uh, really required for a binding contract. So often in sales of land, for example, I think it would be, you know, the money being available, the mortgage being set up. <clears throat> you, you may well have agreed all of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the terms in the contract. And so that the mortgage arrangements wouldn't feature in that. Uh, but nevertheless, you do not want your clients to be obliged to commit to this thing without knowing that the, the mortgage monies are in place. So in sales of land, that, that would be a, a classic way of seeing that the contract and, and the terms are, are distinct concepts, I suppose. Um, and you could separately have uh, no contract yet because further terms are needed to be agreed. And that's where you've got it in parallel, if you like, no contract because the terms aren't complete. Um, equally, you could have a contract now, although there are some terms which the parties have decided are not important and will be agreed later. And, and I think many students have difficulty with that one because there, there seem to be some terms left outstanding. But uh, Lord Bingham would say, well, you know, the parties are masters of their own contractual fates. And if they're happy to go into a contract leaving some things that they consider to be minor outstanding, then fine, so be it. So long as the court can actually enforce the thing, it, you know, uh, it stands up as it, as it is, then that's in principle not a, not a problem. So I suppose that's one of the things that Lord Justice Lewison was concerned about, this sort of conflating of the contract and the terms. Yes, I think that's, that's quite clear I, at paragraph 34 when he said the fact that the parties are of one mind is not enough when the parties negotiate subject contract. There must be a formal contract for inferring that the parties must have intended to expunge the qualification of subject contract. So, yes, that is... And he's so worried, isn't he? He's so worried about anything at court of appeal level, uh, anything that is done to this magic label, if you like, that solicitors are using day in, day out, uh, and knowing in confidence that that's what it means, I, I, you know, I, that's what's so very, very important, I think. And, and uh, I think Lord Justice Lewison, being so experienced, uh, and, and a property lawyer, actually, originally, landlord and tenant, you know, he, he would know that. Uh, and so, we, you know, don't rock the boat. You know, the boat's not sinking. Uh, don't start boring holes in the bottom of it and letting the water in. And, and you would be upsetting an awful lot of conveyancing work if you suddenly say, oh, well, you know, it's just a label. And if the parties really were in agreement, you know, you've got a contract. I think, you know, there would be all sorts of problems from that. So uh, from from what you're saying, Maggie, I wonder I wonder if I can jump in on on that. This the subject of contract label then seems to possibly take on a, a second 
nature, as it were. So in this context, and I think I mentioned that in the intro, the fact that there were still terms outstanding essentially justified the label of subject to contract, which means that the subjective opinion could be overridden by a subject to contract label quite nicely, I think, because th there was a justification for it. I wonder if we, had, if we took that away, uh, and I know Lewison is, is very concerned here about, um, about keeping that certainty around that term, but if they had actually agreed on all outstanding terms, say, say that they had received um, the material back from council and so on and so forth, and they'd agreed, and this, this case had gone in the same way. I wonder whether or not then the subject to contract, because the parties clearly wouldn't have meant it anymore, could override. Now, I mean this in the sense of what we saw, um, for example, in, in terms of terms written into a contract and then terms added orally if they're in conflict, say Evans and Mazzario type situation, where they were saying you could store the goods above deck in the contract, in the written contract, and they then said in verbal on the phone, uh, we promise we'll put them below deck, the, the oral term overrode the written term. Ah, but I, <clears throat> that's quite different, isn't it? That, that's an argument about uh, what the terms are. Absolutely, uh, and, yes. I'm uh, just drawing a parallel. And we're there. not actually, uh, well, I, I don't think they are analogous. Um, the closest analogy that I can see with this sort of problem um, would be the um, one that you're quite keen on, Tim. I think the, the no oral modification idea. Yeah. That that is the closest analogy that I can see here. Um, you know that it's it's like a subject to contract label. It operates in a similar sort of fashion. Um, but the case that you're talking about is an argument about what the terms are. So that presupposes that uh, you have a contract at this point, whereas the fundamental question in Joanne Properties is whether there is a contract or not. I, I agree, um, but what, what it is going to is that a certain, at a certain point, the subjective intention clearly overrides. At, at some point, you can see that you've gone past the point, right, where what is written is not actually meant by the parties anymore. Well, then it's not, uh, we can't talk about subjective intention. Uh, and that's what I was trying to say at the beginning. It's irrelevant. Uh, and I don't care what they thought of actually in their head. It is how objectively uh, it is perceived, if you like. And so that subject to contract labelling is a very important part of that objectivity uh, situation, if you like, or, or context, because the way in which the solicitors are dealing, as I, as I had said at the outset, is fundamentally couched in those terms. So even if they had agreed all of the substance, if I put it that way, um, but they are still persisting with the subject to contract labelling, I would say it is no different because of the importance of that labelling and because that is the way we have decided over the last 100 years or so, that is the safest way of preserving this, this uh, certainty, if you like, that the parties can say, okay, agreed on everything, but not a contract yet. Let's, let's try, let me try and inject another little bit into that. <clears throat> um, 
let's say they were they were switching these emails backwards and forwards, always in the subject line of the email subject to contract. And on the very last bit, one of the parties says, so we are then agreed on all the terms uh, of the contract. And the other party says, yes, we are agreed. Surely that would have to override the subject to contract. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I would agree Sub- with Maggie. Subject to contract, you know, it originated with land. So that, that's where its understanding and its behaviour is taken, as it were. Uh, so if you think about exchange of contracts in land, it is at that very nanosecond uh, that there is a deal. And until that point, there is no deal. And this exchange is a, you might say it's a very formula, ritualistic moment, but it's, it's significant. Um, and, and I think that is the, the importance of that labelling. And apart from that, I'd say something we've not yet talked about is uh, the context is also very important, I think, in this case, because this is civil litigation. You're not contracting uh, in a vacuum, if you like. You're contracting here against the background of existing civil proceedings. And in a sense, it's all very well saying, oh, well, we've got a contract, we've got a deal. But hang on, you've still got the civil proceedings round your neck. And these two things have to be brought into line. Uh, Otherwise, you have a problem. You've got to dispose of the civil proceedings uh, in in the same way, in tandem, if you like, as you're trying to wrap this up as a contract. And that makes an added complication. And I think that's what uh, Lord Justice Lewison is is trying to sort of say when he's talking about, uh, well, the parties needed a consent order and they envisaged that that's what they were working towards. And so you do not have resolution of the civil proceedings until you've got a consent order, which is drawn up, terms agreed and signed by the solicitors and taken to the court and rubber stamped, if I can use that rude phrase, because they don't always rubber stamp it, but approved, if I use the proper language, approved by the court. And so, you know, What's the nightmare situation? Somebody says, oh, you've got a contract, but the civil proceedings have not been disposed of properly. You don't want that. Neither party wants that. I think it all, if, if, if I can, um, it, it's almost the protection that, you know, you are agreed, but there is not a contract yet. So, you know, similarly to the process of formation, you know, um, there must be an agreement which is then backed up by consideration and intention to create legal relationships. So uh, the fact that the parties agreed on its own is not enough. So here the subject to contract, the label, as uh, Lewison uh, calls it, is the, you know, the protection that uh, indeed, I mean, I'm not uh, not a practicing solicitor, so uh, Maggie, I am bowing. No, neither am I anymore. (laughs) No, but you were. And so I am bowing to your, you know, to your knowledge in this, you know, indeed it is, I, I can see how for solicitors it is incredibly important to have that protection that everything they say uh, is going to be subject to contract. So it is completely agreed that, you know, the parties may have agreed. And so I can see, Tim, what you are uh, trying to, to say here that, you know, surely if they're both agreed, it doesn't matter that, you know, um, that, you know, surely that is enough to say that there is a contract. But I would say here, I go back to what uh, Lord Lewison said uh, in paragraph 33 and 34, the fact that the parties are in mind is one thing, 
And yet, whether they have expunged, uh, whether they have satisfied all the formalities, for want of a better word. Um, so I think that's how I see it. The subject to contract is here to protect perhaps the solicitors more than the parties here to make sure that all the boxes have been ticked. Well, you, you use it to protect your client's interests. <clears throat> and I suppose it's analogous, if you like, to the label without prejudice in, in civil proceedings. That's also used to try and protect your client's uh, position, as it were. So I, I, I'm not sure it's to protect solicitors, but it's it's for certainty and to protect the interests of the client. Somebody in this situation, I think, has had a change of heart, as it were, and that's <laughs> that's why we have the dispute. Quite, I think that's one of the one, one of the fundamental elements of this case is that one of the parties has changed their mind, changed solicitor, and, and changed their mind uh, on it. Um, I want to stay a little bit, I want to probe a little bit more on the um, subjective, objective and, and the objective, objective uh, part that we were talking about. So the, my first point was, okay, subjectively, we might be able to see that they were agreed. And then, and then there might be instances where objectively as well, they are agreed, but they've left the label on. In both cases, your response was the same. So how do we square that with the case of RTS Flexible then, where they were still using the label subject to contract? But their actions, their objective actions, showed that actually they thought they were in agreement. Well, context is not all, but it's pretty much 90%, isn't it? Um, and in that one, it's quite different. You haven't got any litigation at the background. Yeah. This is not a contract of settlement or compromise. So you're stripping out all of these things that I'm bothered about in terms of the civil process, in terms of consent orders, in terms of having a deal which is aligned with what's happening with the civil process. None of that is at all relevant for RTS. Uh, and added uh, to that, uh, you've got a sort of contract which is forward-looking, if you like, rather than backward-looking, if, if that's not too cryptic. In other words, in RTS, people were going to do things, make things into the future. And in fact, they had actually started to do that. So that's another point of distinction. Whereas with a contract of compromise or settlement, whether or not there's litigation on foot, you're not necessarily looking backwards in a sense because you're you're resolving an existing dispute uh, and uh, it's not really about performance into the future. You're, you're trying to uh, uh, wrap up uh, an existing problem, as it were. So I think the Supreme Court themselves in RTS, don't they, at some point, I can't remember which, which of uh, his lordships it was, who said, uh, you know, the, the context here is very important. Uh, the moral of the tale may well be do not start work until you have finalised your contract. But uh, if you do start work, it, it may not be a total disaster in that the court could decide that, yes, the parties had uh, reached a contract. Um, but, but also in RTS, I suppose, there would have been another route to some uh, justice, as it were, because there would have been a quantum Merowit claim for the value of the work that had been See, done. See, that's exactly so, where I think the distinction actually lies. I know I'm answering my own question here, but, <laughs> and that happens more often than wrong. <laughs> well, rather. presumably you'll be happy with that answer then. Fair, fair, yes, I think, I think, well, <laughs> again, I, what I wanted to get 
to was the context, really. I mean, the context is so, so important to these kind of decisions. And I think the context here, the compromise, the idea of the compromise. But actually, the distinction with RTS Flexible was what else was the court going to come up with? Right, the quantum merit was was going to be probably a pretty bad decision. This was a bespoke robotics installation that probably had to be finished, really, to make any commercial sense. So it 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 probably made sense. You know, what other terms were they going to find? So in that case, I think the fact that they had started to perform and they'd started to perform on, on that basis, essentially, the court was picking terms which they needed to pick and and those were simply the best terms that they could find uh, and i'm not sure that it would necessarily be decided if it were a smaller or a one-off contract or something along those lines so i think there's a distinction basically the distinction is on the facts and probably doesn't really come down to the objective intentions that much at all you've got a view about that severine it looks like you do let's put it that way <laughs> For all our listeners, we at least Thought. have the we at least have the benefit of, of screens, so we can see faces, which which you can't. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I yeah, I think you know I, somebody says it, don't they? In that judgment, um, they say a, a court is going to be very loath, very reluctant to say there is no contract when you have got halfway down the road to performing the damn thing. It's kind of like an assumption that there is this damn thing. Um, So, you know, this is, Lord Stain might have said, you know, the reasonable expectations of, of the business person. You know, what the hell is the law doing if it decides you've performed and yet, oh, no, you thought you had a contract and you've done all the work, but wise up, you know, you haven't got a contract at all. Um, That's a crazy situation, isn't it? So it would be, I think, unusual for a court to end up with saying that you you thought you had a contract, but you haven't when you've performed it. Uh, And so there is pretty good evidence from that performance as to what objectively the terms were because you have performed it and no one has argued about your performance as it were that that, that to my mind that that would be a significant thing and so rts i think is a, is a million miles i'm afraid away from joanne properties quite quite i i quite agree with that the, the performance is always indeed the you know i mean yes you did refer to uh lord stein and the re- reasonable expectation of the parties the fact that you know as we traditionally tell our students that you know the courts are loath to undo something that the parties parties uh, have started performing and, and, and all the sanctity of contract and all that. But I, I think that the, 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 the RTS is, was actually referred to uh, by uh, Lewison to show that the subject to contract uh, clauses or um, impact on impact in a wider manner than on, on, on contract for land. But I would agree with the fact that, you know, when there is performance, uh, and I think Lewison himself says it, uh, that in uh, RTS Flexible, the reason why one of the elements uh, that the uh, subject contract clause has been had been waived was indeed because of the uh, part performance uh, of the contract. So I... Um, I, I I would agree uh, with uh, Maggie that indeed they are, you know, wide apart, uh, but they are both 
uh, illustration of what the context is in order to assess um, the uh, party's uh, intention. And I suppose this is a point where where students would naturally um, feel unsettled, as it were, because we're constantly banging on about English contract law uh, strives for predictability and certainty and clear rules. Uh, and is less bothered about justice or uh, good faith or uh, equitable situation. That's for the law of equity. Uh, but at the same time, we're saying, oh, but context is so very important, which is obviously uh, the tide going in the other direction, as it were. So there, there is a bit of a tension, I suppose, between that, isn't there? Certainty and predictability on the one hand, and yet being flexible enough to adjust for different contexts. But the context the context is part of the ob objectivity, isn't it? The context gives us the full yes. picture of, yes. of what the objective intentions are. So in that sense, I don't think they necessarily go against each other that much. Just the, 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 the idea of clear rules and, and, and you know, the certainty idea, um, that, that's one thing. And then when you talk about context being different, so, you know, thinking about the comparison between RTS and, and Joanne properties, you know, so a, a student might struggle uh, to, to actually see, well, uh, you know, as, as you're suggesting, Tim, really, you know, why is it different in one as opposed to the other? When both of them are using the same label subject to contract. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, and this well, is, they this are is reconcilable really we... because in, in one, in, in RTS, if we want to you know, summarize it and, uh, and and bog it down to whether there has been poor performance or not. Here there hasn't. Yes. I mean, if we were to fiddle around with the facts in Joanne Properties, nobody would be arguing, probably, if someone had actually transferred the £172,000 or whatever it was, you know. Um, how, how can you then turn around and say that you didn't have uh, a contract? So, sort of, to try, try and um, uh, play with your argument, Tim, uh, regardless of the subject to contract label, uh, then you would have pretty good evidence that you had mutually disposed of that label, if you understand what I mean by that, by, by performing, by transferring the money, accepting the money. Which goes to really what Lewis was saying in his criticism of the first instance judge, where he said that they, the first instance judge relied way too much on the question of whether they were agreed rather than the question of intention. And I guess the intention would be perfectly exemplified by the transfer of money, for example. Uh, well, I would see that as more as evidence of a mutual waiving of the subject to contract label. Uh, but it would also, I suppose, be evidence of there being the, a contract. So I think it comes back to the point that I was trying to make at the beginning, that there is a distinction between having an agreement um, and having um, terms agreed, if that makes sense. So a distinction between a contract and the terms. Yes. And it suddenly, I'm thinking aloud, so please completely cut that out, uh, Tim, if it's just, you know, rubbish. But therefore, I'm just thinking, if there is, so if uh, Joanne Properties had sent the money, would that be an implied, because, it, it you know, it is an acceptance of the other term. So would that be an implied acceptance? I think it might be useful evidence that someone would use to show that the subject to contract label 
had been mutually uh, put to one side, disposed of, if you like. Okay, so one one question that I have, not knowing the uh, procedural uh, element of subject to contract, does it need to be mutually? Well, what yes, if- because uh, it's a bit like without prejudice. You know, it, it's it's something which is there for the protection of both parties. Uh, we tend to think of waiver as being a one-sided thing because it because it is a right that one of the parties has and and may give it up so waver in that old fashioned use of the english words yeah. to give something up quite often when we see it in in contract law as we study it with students uh, it is something that uh, is a right only for one of the parties and so you don't have this question as to well what what of the other the other party but where you've got a label like subject to contract or without prejudice, this is there to benefit both parties. And therefore, you need mutual waiver. In other words, both parties have got to say, OK, let's dispose of the label now. We have now got to the contract stage. So if you think of exchange of contracts with land, which is where it started, I think, historically, you have evidence at that moment of what used to be physical exchange of documents. That moment is uh, showing you that mutual waiver of the, the label. So it, it can't be one-sided because like without prejudice, subject to contract is a, is a mutual thing. It is not like uh, giving up some conditional right that one party and only one party in a contract has. So I think that that's an important feature to sort of remember about this label. It needs both parties to say, yes, OK, we are happy now. We remove the label. But in that case, the transferring of money wouldn't be enough. Well, the acceptance well, of yes, it. Yes, the other party would have to accept the money then, presumably. I think but... that all I'm saying is the payment and receipt of money uh, would be, uh, I, I'm just playing with the yeah, facts that yeah, we don't please. have, but I, I personally I would be arguing if I was the advocate or I'd be trying to argue that that would have been pretty good evidence of a mutual waiver or setting aside, if you like, of that label. We had metaphorically or metaphysically uh, put a line through the subject to contract wording on the very last document because it's analogous to sales of land at that moment of exchange of physical contracts. And originally you would physically move documents, you would send them in, 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 the, in the ether or the post as it were, or you would take them round to the other solicitor's office. It is a, a sort of ritualistic moment as it were. But payment of money and receipt of that money happily, I would say is pretty good evidence that both parties have said, yeah, okay, we take the label off now. So why does that have to happen through performance and not through an, another objective way of doing it? No, it, 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 it could, it, well, it could happen, I would say, in principle, in, in, any, in any way. But I was looking at Joanne Properties specifically yeah. uh, and, and, and trying to think of those facts. So I was playing with the facts and so uh, to try and bring it more in line with RTS flexible, if you like, because we were talking about yep, performance. Yep, yep. And so the, the only obvious instance of performance that I can think of in Joanne Properties would, uh, would be someone has actually transferred this money that they were arguing about. But if we're saying that one can do, do that see- expressly in those circumstances, wouldn't we also be able to, and don't worry, I'm just being, I'm trying to 
play a little bit here. Um, but wouldn't we then also be able to do that impliedly? Well, it's just the, yes, indeed. People don't have to say, here is the money I am now performing. Please remove the label. Um, that might have been said, but all I'm saying is it's an inference or it's implicit that that is what you meant. And coming back to the objectivity idea, standing back from the parties, that is, I would say, what a court would conceivably conclude that by the performance, the transfer of money under the last terms that were being discussed, the parties had to the outside world and to one another indicated that, that that's okay, this is now a contract and we remove the label. So why can't we apply that into the word agreed? Because you haven't disposed of the labelling and you haven't performed. All you've done is you've said agreed. So this comes back to my argument about there being a difference between the existence of a contract and the existence of agreement on terms. And come back to sales of lands where subject to contract started, you might have agreed every term of your contract of sale, you buying number 12A, the bungalow in Dawlish, you might have agreed everything that you needed to with the seller and the purchaser in that setting, yet there is still something that you know you want to be in place before you want to commit your clients to a binding contract. And that's often as I was saying right at the beginning, the availability of mortgage monies. So just simply saying, agreed, I agree this, this is got the sums going to be, this is the property, this is who it's going to be transferred to, this is, I don't know, the, all of the, 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 the detail of the conveyance might be agreed. And that's just the sort of thing that was happening in Joanne Sorry. Properties. Sorry. Yet, Sorry. no contract um, yet. The one way I would try to phrase it differently agreed is not an unequivocal exactly or is not exactly. as unequivocal as performance i say that's how we can make the different we can understand the difference well, i think I, I would come back to the context and lord justice lewison saying solicitors use the word agreed meaning we are talking about the terms so wouldn't it be more accurate to say that actually agreed then no, that's that right. implied in the terminology agreed that it's not full agreement it's a it's no it's a, it's a, it's agreement on the terms but not agreement on the existence of the contract. Which does actually confirm because what Lord Lewison was saying. In other words, it goes to the question of intention, not so much whether they, whether they were saying they were agreed. Yeah. I, I just think you need to sort of bear in mind, what are you agreeing? When you use the word agreed, what is it in that context that objectively we are concluding the parties have agreed upon? Uh, and, and, and I agree with you, Severin, if, if, if what you are saying is the word agreement is naturally ambiguous as, as a word that uh, is used in ordinary English. Um, and we even with students, we, we kind of like tend to use agreement almost like uh, as a, a synonym for contract. And we probably shouldn't, because this is what I'm banging on about, really, that contract is a particular concept which only a pedantic lawyer is probably bothered about. But look at the context of 
Joanne Properties. These are pedantic lawyers making the correspondence. They use the word agreed, meaning the terms. And because they have retained this label subject to contract, they, they are meaning agreed on terms, but not agreed as to a contract. Do you, do you see so what does, I'm getting does at? Does the label subject to contract in, in this case actually matter that much? Yes, I think it does. Because if we, if we were to say, you know, considering the context and the, the civil procedure rules and everything else that goes around it, wouldn't it be implied anyway that even if they said agreed, they only meant the terms, not that they have a contract? No, but therefore it, it, it all boils down to whether they have waived the subject to contract. And here the term is the utmost, in, in a way, the ultimate protection until that has been either waived by an unequivocal act, which can be either performance uh, in RTS or any other objectively defined by the court. Uh, therefore, that is the ultimate protection until and unless that goes. There is no there is the parties are in one's mind, but there is no contract. I mean, you're. you're no, sorry, I was going well, the other way. I was going the other way with that with that argument. Was the the idea was that actually the subject to contract label wasn't actually that important for it to be subject to contract because it was always implied that the word agreed was only agreed as to the terms rather than that they were actually in a contract. Well, I I, I think there are two there are two things, aren't there? given the context of this with the litigation and and given the important correspondence i think there are two very strong indicators here that there was no final contract the 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 first is as we've been going on about the the labeling subject to contract and the second one and i would say equally important to that in the context is the correspondence that talked about a consent order yes and that transferred a what was labelled a draft consent order. And, and Lord Justice Lewis, and I, I don't know the paragraph, but he, he picked this out. It was a Word document, and the author of it said, um, it's it set up so that we can do tracked changes. Um, and if you're talking about a draft consent order... Naturally, you haven't yet got a consent order, and therefore that's another good, pretty strong indicator that you haven't got a contract yet if what is very important in this particular setting is that you do not have resolution of a contract irrespective of the litigation without at the same time the litigation being happily resolved. Those two need to be aligned. Otherwise, some client is in a bad position. And that, that to me... And I like, think those two things yeah, together... I think, I think that's what I was saying at the beginning as well, that that is actually the fact that, that to me was a deciding point in this case, less so the label subject to contract and much more so the fact that they hadn't actually agreed on all terms and therefore there can't be an intention at least from the solicitor's point of view. What subjectively the actual client of the solicitor thought is, is probably pretty irrelevant. Uh, but, you know, you, you could have a situation where you have, say, you know, just playing with the facts, you have a consent order which is still labelled draft because it's not yet gone to the court. 
and yet it has been signed and dated by both solicitors, you, you then might have a particular problem if the court says, no, I, I can't approve that consent order. It, it's defective in some way. And, and sometimes the court does do that. So the solicitors thought that they had done a pretty good job with the consent order. But when they got to the court, the court refused. But wouldn't that be something like a condition precedent rather than anything else? In other words, this contract won't come into existence unless the court is going to let us. Would, would that really have to be solved via intentional formation, as it were? Um, well, I think it's along the same lines, isn't it, as the subject to contract idea. This, this notion of an agreement is predicated, conditional on the court approving it. So even though you've got both parties having signed the thing, you, you, you may well be trying to argue that there is no final contract until that moment of the court seal going on the, the document itself. No, I think, I think the two are quite different because in the, in the condition precedent scenario, the, the, the contract will come into existence if the court, court rubber stamps it, as it were regardless of whether in the meantime the parties have changed their mind. Whereas presumably in the, in, in, in the kind of scenario we have now, the parties would be able to go back on it, even if they had, say, agreed, because it's still subject to contract. So the, the, the basis is, is, is different, I would say. Maggie's not happy with that. I'm sorry. What have I done? Uh, I, I, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand your point. Try that again. So if we, if we have the situation that there's a condition precedent to the contract, so we agree that, that um, I, will, I will pay you back £500 pounds, um, once my salary arrives, right? The, the, the salary arriving is a condition precedent. It, once that is fulfilled, I have to pay. The same would be here is that they enter into a contract subject to the court um, rubber stamping it. In both cases, we've got, we have a contract, we wouldn't be able to back out of it, but the court still has to rubber stamp it. Uh, well, where are you going with that contract? What, 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 what is it? How do you enforce it? What, what content does it have if, if it, it doesn't come into being and, unless and until the court approves it? I don't see what existence it has until that moment of, of court approval. It still exists. Uh, what do you do with it? What value does it have? How is it? Well, you, yeah, you don't have very much. You don't, you don't have very much value until until that event happens. I guess what are, are you trying to but, say that with a condition precedent as soon. So if we go to the example that you've just said, the as soon as the condition precedent is satisfied, there is a contract and therefore the other party can enforce it and force you to pay if you refuse. Whilst with a subject to contract until and unless the court rubber stamps it, A, the parties can change their mind and B, it cannot be acted upon. That is, ex yes, bang on. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I was, sorry, yes. yes. Well, there is indeed a distinction. The subject to contract, I would say, therefore, is uh, an added, you know, the best, best, best protection because until and unless that happens, there is no enforceable contract. Whilst with a condition precedent, when the condition is satisfied, then the contract is enforceable and, if breached, can be acted upon by the victim of the breach. And that is how, is dis uh, how I would distinguish between the cases of the parties have agreed and signed both of the documents, but 
they are they are both under the understanding that the court has to now rubber stamp it. In other words, in that case, there could be an agreement. It, whereas in the subject to contract up until that point, there's there's nothing. So the signed document would make quite a significant difference. I suppose you need to keep distinct that the, the civil process and, and the consent order once approved by the court, irrespective of anything that might be happening contractually, is itself enforceable yes. as an order of the court. Yes. And it has absolutely nothing to do with contract at that point. It is merely being enforced by the court. Or it, gives, it gives you the right as the party to go to the court and say, please help me enforce that because it has a, a, a separate existence and a separate power by virtue of the court rules. So, so this is this becomes more complex because you are when you're talking about a consent order, you're talking about the enforceability of something that is purely down to the civil procedure rules and the court's powers. And it might not have anything to do with a contract. Whereas what you were also talking about is the label subject to contract, which is something that is purely used in, in a contractual setting. So in Joanne Properties, you have two things that are running in parallel. And I think actually Lord Justice Lewison uses that word because he says, look, there's the CPR part 36. There's the, um, the offers to settle and the consent order. That is controlled and administered and subject to its own rules that are purely court rules. So the CPR is, as we would know them now. And then in parallel, we have here uh, an argument which is purely contract is to do you have a contract or not? And, and that, so there are different branches of law, if you like, that in this case have just come along one, one beside the other, as it were. Now, that the nightmare situation, as I was saying a few minutes ago, is where you have a divergence in conclusion between those two parallel lines. What you don't want is a contract which is enforceable so far as contract law is concerned, and yet you do not have a consent order, which is in, um, um, a civil procedure thing, which is in a line with that. Is that related to what you were saying or, or, or some other total different point? I'm, I'm not entirely sure what your point was. <laughs> that, that always makes good for... Um... Well, it's, it's my... Fa no, it's, it's, I'm sure it's my failing. Not, no, no, not I get the... Yours. Well, I, I, I get the feeling I, I did a really bad job at explaining it. Severine did a much better job at that. Um... Well, I'm not sure I got it even then. So, <laughs> so it must be my fault. I, 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 I am quite prepared to take. No, I, I think there. I think where we might have gone off course is that we, I, I, I was talking purely about the contractual side and the track changes document oh, and, okay. and the fact that okay. it doesn't matter that it might be contingent on another, on an approval elsewhere for there to actually be a contract. Because it may lay somewhere else. Yeah, Whereas okay, okay. when we're talking okay, about, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and this is going really to, to what Lord Lewison was saying about the question of intention. The question of intention can sometimes be settled even though it's dependent on something else, which would just be solved by a different area of, of contract law, which would be condition precedent. That was my thought. I mean, whether that, that actually makes sense, I don't really know because I just came up with it spur of the moment as I was listening to what you were saying. So no, but I, be... think, I think the point of, you know, to help 
the dis- you know there is a distinction between a condition precedent and a subject to contract, and I think that's what we said. And you know, on that, your question was valid um, because indeed there are uh, consequences. Once you know, all it needs for a condition precedent to have effect, effectively to be binding and to be legally enforceable, if breached, is that it happens. If it doesn't, then you know, there might. If it doesn't happen, then arguably there is no contract either. But the processes are two different things, and I think yeah. that's important. Okay. To, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I accept that in, in principle. Yeah. Yes, I think that's as good as I'm going to ever get. I'd like this moment. I'd like this moment recorded. I'm so glad the recording's working. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, so I think I think we got quite far actually in our discussion today by by modifying the facts a little. Uh, we've we've done. Um, some harm, I think, to Joanne Properties uh, as a case by, by altering the facts as we went through. Um, I, I was particularly interested, actually, in this whole applied removal of the subject contract label. Um, but I do think that time is probably running out. Um, so, as always, the question, uh, well, I'll formulate it differently because I know I know we're pretty much all agreed on, on the judgment itself. Is there anything we think that uh, Lord Lewison should have addressed in his judgment um, would be my final question before we all disperse? That sounds like a question which is pregnant with an answer. That, that means you have found something that you think he's missed. Not necessarily. I, I, I thought he was ever so slightly <laughs> over-reliant on the subject contract label. Uh, and I think that is in part what we were what we were discussing. I would have liked to see a little bit more on the whole idea of the question and and subjective objective agreement. I d- I don't think he wants to rock any boat there. As I said, this is a very important labelling process and system, yes. which everybody knows in legal practice, and he would not want to be damaging that one. So, how would we summarise this case then in just a few words? Go on, Severine. Have you got a neat summary? Oh, I was trying to think, oh, God, only summarising it in a few words and then I saw your face, Maggie, and I thought, I think we're both a bit stunned by your question. <laughs> I do apologise. It well, wasn't in the notes, so... Uh. I, I think Lord Justice Lewison got it right. I'm sure he'd be able to sleep at night knowing that Mrs Hemsworth thinks he got it right. Well, I, th- I, I think he got it right too. Um... Then he will be sleeping very soundly then. <laughs> But who are we to, <laughs> to cast judgment? Well, yes. not just my tongue is firmly in my cheek at this point, you know. Who are we? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Absolutely. And on, on that bombshell, I think we can leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Bye.